Okay. <clears throat> Full, warm, and ready for a nap, right? <laughs> I'd like to guide you on another meditation that uh, the more experienced a meditator you are, the more successful you will find that you are at this. But um, I'm sometimes surprised at uh, how well people can do with this. But in the course of this meditation, if you find that uh, uh, you need to, just go back to following the breath, and you'll have a nice, have a nice sit. Okay. This practice is called finding the still point. As we go along, we'll see why it's called that. So, get comfortable. <clears throat> Take a deep breath and let it out. Get all relaxed. And become fully present. I'd like you to direct your attention outward in the sense of outward to this world that we're a part of. We're approximately in the middle of this city. bit of the traffic. And as you know, there are many thousands of cars and trucks running around all over the city. Tap into that awareness. sense the hundreds of thousands of people busily doing this and that.
their planes flying overhead. Not just the one we hear right now, but, but many, many thousands of airplanes of different sizes and shapes and helicopters. People traveling vast distances. sense the busyness and the activity all over this world. Picture in your mind everything that's going on. Billions and billions of human beings and animals of various sorts. Huge cities, several million people each. All with their different concerns. Rivers flowing, waves crashing on coastlines, storms moving through the atmosphere, this planet we're sitting on is spinning on its axis tremendous speed, while traveling in an orbit around the sun at many, many thousands of miles an hour. While the sun and the solar system <coughs> travel through space at, frankly, unimaginable speeds. Compare all of this activity, all of this sound and fury, to the comparative stillness of your body. Come into the stillness of your body. And of course, if there's any tension, let it go. particularly want you to hold in, in your consciousness and awareness the incredible contrast between the stillness in this room and the stillness in your body and what's going on all around us. So let that contrast 
be your meditation object for the next little while. Savor this stillness. Enjoy it. Appreciate it. What are the appropriate labels? Calmness? Peacefulness? Settle more deeply into this immobility, letting go of any tension anywhere in your body. Let this be the object of your attention while all of that activity and hecticness of the world beyond your skin 
stands in contrast. Even in the stillness, there is activity. Do you feel your heart beating? The blood rushing through your arteries. Perhaps you can even feel it pulsing in your your fingers and your toes. And of course the breath. Contracting of the diaphragm, the rising of the abdomen, the lifting of the chest, the swirling of the air in your nasal passages, the expansion of your lungs. Think of what's going on in your stomach and digestive tract. You may not be able to feel it, but then again, maybe you might. But you know your, your stomach is churning and mixing, contracting, as are your intestines. <coughs> Juices being secreted, nutrients being absorbed. filtered as it pushes its way through the capillaries of your kidneys. Can we find a more quiet place than this body? about your mind. By comparison with the body, the mind is a pretty quiet place. And let's shift our attention to that quietness of the mind compare it to the busyness of the body. 
not being a physical thing, the mind isn't moving in the way that all the different parts of your body move, all of the other things in this world around us are moving. Let's take refuge in the quietness of our minds. Holding that quietness in contrast to all the busyness of the material world, including your own body. Especially sitting here quietly as we are, there is a calm peacefulness to the mind that stands in contrast to the hecticness of the physical world. When I say take refuge in it, savor it, appreciate it. the longer we spend focusing our attention on the quietness of our mind, the more obvious it becomes that the mind too is a place of great activity. So let's watch that activity for a little while, the arising and passing away of thoughts and emotions and feelings, the movements of attention. Make that the focus of your attention.
Notice how if you anchor your attention to the sensations of the breath at the nose, it does produce a relative calm in the mind. It slows or stops the movement of attention. field of conscious awareness is never truly quiet. As a matter of fact, it's quite busy. And peripheral awareness is the constant arising and passing away of objects of consciousness of various kinds, sensory and mental. into a boiling pot. to a quieter place than this? What about the place from which this observation is taking place? See if you can move into that place. place from which the constant stream of activity in the mind is observed. Take your time and see if you can find your way to that place. It's like the stationary axle around which the wheel turns. It's that point of observation that is unaffected by what is observed.
when you succeed in finding your way to this still point. Dwell there. Let everything else go along as it, as it must. Let the thoughts come and go, the sensations, let the planes fly, let the galaxies spin, and dwell on this still point. Savor it. is the ultimate refuge. Once you've felt this still point, you know immediately when you've been grabbed out of it again. And you can find your way back.
Is this not what the word tranquility was meant to refer to? present with the whole universe of everything else. There's nothing dead or dull or asleep about this at all. Notice the relationship you have with your mind from this vantage point. It doesn't really matter what your mind does.
This is the place from which you can ask that all-important question. Who is watching? Who am I? most of the time you feel like you are your mind. So who is this that's watching the mind from the still point? Have I not always been here, even when I thought I was my mind, when I thought I was my body, when I was caught up in the swirl of the world? Isn't this where I have always been?
from the still point, I am the witness, not the doer, not the thinker, not the speaker. changes constantly, the body changes constantly, the world is nothing but change. So if you can stay in the still point, if you have realized the witness and hold the question, who or what is this and what happens to it when the body dies?
at any point you think you know the answer, keep looking, because you're almost certainly wrong. Reentry can take a little bit. But as you re-enter, it's really interesting to compare where you just were to where you are now. just did is uh, insight practice that is very useful at stage 9 or 10 of Samatang. It is one of those practices that in certain traditions, you know, one of the leapfrog things that we try to enter into without going through the intermediate steps. And I really hope that even 
those of you that don't have a lot of attentional stability and meditation in your belt, under your belt, could at least get the flavor of where you can go with that. So, whenever you feel like speaking, let me know. Yes? I was curious because I don't know if there was a point. There was definitely peace and, and, and like just calmness and quietness of mind. I didn't feel any particular point. <laughs> but That's actually good. Because a point is just a figure of speech, isn't it? The questions didn't make any sense at a certain point. They just totally didn't make any sense. Mm. And then it kind of felt like there was a pull to some of the questions. But it was more about pulling like away from being there's just a mind activity. Certainly, if you start thinking about the answers to questions, you're no longer in the still point. Yes? I thought it was beautiful. I felt as like um, the still point, like a very concentrated, essential point of energy Mm -hmm. and a centeredness. And then the question came up in the concept of impermanence the still point and the witness. Are not part of it, right? Are what? Are not part of the concept of, of impermanence. They are totally. That's the thing. They're in their true nature. They are the essence of impermanence. I know. No. <laughs> That's what I say. You know, you ask yourself, who, who or what is this witness? And the question, what happens to this witness with the death of the body? That's that lovely trick question that every answer is wrong. (laughs) Does it cease? No. Does it continue? No. Does it neither cease nor continue? No. Does it both cease and continue? No. It's a trick question because the answer to that question is beyond all conceptualization. The very act of conceptualization produces a false assumption that cannot be transcended. It seemed to me like every time I am placed, there was this little lift, this little almost adrenal lift, and that's that just kind of, I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say it was exciting, but it was certainly uh, distinct. Mm-hmm. Where was this happening? In that made up image that I had to generate to have a center. Mm-hmm. When I stepped into it and tried to look at the observer that has always observed mm-hmm. and never been different, I couldn't see that, but I could feel that little lift, this, and it was, it was kind of energetic. And that's, mm-hmm. if I just allowed that, then it seemed as though mm-hmm. that could continue, mm-hmm. just that. 
and there's there's not a lot to it. Well, let me just point out to you that if if we make an image to model this, that we're talking about going to a, a center, mm-hmm. and the first ring out from the center is the mind. Mm-hmm. So those those feelings and those thoughts, I mean, they're always happening in the first ring out from the center. Okay? Okay. Now this is a way of looking at things, and, and it's, we have to look at it this way in order to find the center point. But it's all an illusion, you see. Mm-hmm. Because there only is a still point by virtue of our having fabricated a next ring out. Mm-hmm. Without a next ring out, there is no center. Mm-hmm. Right? And so every time you try to think about it, you step into that next ring out so that you can look towards the center that that next ring out creates. So, this theoretical center, which is devoid of all the things that I visited in that theoretical first ring, mm-hmm. you wouldn't really, you wouldn't really have any cargo to take home from that. You couldn't really... Sure, there's, there's no you to take it, and there's no home to take it to. Yeah, there's no cargo. <laughs> so we can pretty much sit here and say, that was a buzz. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. So what we do in this practice, actually, is we use the mind, doing what the mind always does, which it has to do. It fabricates and it creates, and it, it can allow us to... to do something that produces an insight experience. And when this particular practice succeeds, the, the insight experience that it produces is in the form of a cessation. And so, to do this practice, you just keep doing this practice, and you keep finding yourself over and over again, stepping into that imaginary mind space and looking towards the center that the mind space has created for itself, until it becomes more and more obvious what's happening. And at some magical moment when all the conditions are right, there is a cessation. then following the cessation the mind just starts doing its thing again and it tells the story about what just happened (laughs) but what's most important about it is after that moment the mind never functions quite the same way that it did before yes I was curious because the whole question of what is it it felt like if I asked that question, there wasn't really any answer. But if I, like, just was curious, then it kind of intensified the experience. If I just kind of looked at it, like, yeah. I was curious. But if I asked the question, it didn't, it was like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Even. It's, it's really... It's more a state of being curious. Yeah. Just looking at it's, it like, it's the state of... of looking for the answer, searching for the answer. I mean, once you once you got the question, you're done with the question, right? 
Yeah. And it's what uh, what's important is being in the condition, and it is a condition. It's being in the condition of searching for the answer. Yeah, and then I just kind of intensifies. Maybe it increases concentration or something. The other thing about this practice, though, is it makes a fantastic refuge. Life starts to get you down. You got a place to go. An amazing place to go. You find that part of yourself, and some of you, some of you may have found this by accident before. In the most difficult and trying times of your life, in the absolute depths of depression, you suddenly realize there's just this something at the center that just knows that none of that really matters. That it's just not affected by that. But can you get like a deep meditation in a certain way to do that? Then? <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, serious question. You know, can you kind of get like? I, I, I think that if you had the need, you could use meditation and practices like this uh, to help you to to cope. But I wouldn't call that an addiction because, or even if it is, it it's, it's more like a. It's more like a medicine because using the medicine relieves the pain, but it's a good medicine. It also eventually produces a cure as well. I was thinking also, like, maybe an antidote to that addiction thing is to realize that it's not really separate. You're not going somewhere else to sleep. There is nowhere else to go. Yeah, I think that's like really good addiction. You don't want to go somewhere else and escape. The whole paradigm of addiction is <laughs> it's just all part of this nonsensical fabrication. Yeah. Um, my experience maybe was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, when I am, when I usually want to meditate, get myself somewhere in nature. And when you mention a stillness, I thought about a rock in the middle mm-hmm. of a river mm-hmm. that it doesn't move. It's a good image. Even if the current gets high or strong mm-hmm. or shallow yeah. or dirty, still yeah. stays there. That's a really good image. I, I like it and it's very consistent. Uh, you know, we all have our own ways of of conceptualizing and verbalizing. And so, I inflicted mine on your minds, <laughs> but but your minds have every right and, in fact, an obligation to find your own mind's way to express this. Okay. So, speaking of that, when, when I hear still point and witness, um, I think Advaita Vedanta and theism being injected, or, or for that matter, Tibetan Buddhist-style theism, sure. being injected into uh, um, in, into um, um, a context that the Buddha worked so hard to avoid. Uh-huh. So, so is there something wrong with wanting, if you conduct it as a pure exploration and what you find is moments of consciousness um, and no witness and no still point? Yeah. I, I don't think that the Buddha would have had any problem at all with Advaita. That's non, non-dualism. Because the method of non-dualism is to find this still point, to find this witness, to do the practice of I am that, in order to discover 
uh, that, you know, there's a terminology thing here. In Hilaita, they talk about the true self. And in Buddhism says there is no self. But in Advaita, the true self is no self. It is the antithesis of self. And to do the practice of I am that is, is to come to the place where I am dissolves. And so it's, it's, not really, it's not really a contradiction. But of course, from, most, from the point of view of most people who have studied Buddhism, they would look at that and say, this witness, it's some kind of a self, and there is no self. Therefore, this has got to be a wrong practice. But the whole point, the whole point of it is, uh, it's a method. In, in a way, it's kind of, it does kind of what Tantra does. It says, okay, let's, let's embrace Let's embrace this experience of selfhood. Let's see where it really takes us. Let's take it to take it to the ultimate. And the ultimate is the dissolution of, of all the concepts that support any possibility of selfhood. Because I mean, after all, it's called Advaita, which means non-dual. And how can a self and a non-self, how can self and other be non-dual? But I, I have no hesitation in making use of these extremely powerful practices that belong to other traditions for the simple reason that, that they are valid, they are powerful, they are useful. And at least in the case of Advaita, at least in that particular case, there's not really any association of wrong wrong views and ideas, uh, wrong ideas. There's just a different language, you know. And some of the words in the two languages sound the same, but they don't really mean the same thing. So. Yeah. In my, in my class with the pets, I try to uh, describe, describe the witness to them and by asking him a question, have you ever driven from A to B, uh-huh. got there, and had no recollection of how you got there? You got there safely, right. but you can't recall a single thing along the path. Right. And almost everybody's had that experience. Yes. And I said, that's the person, that's the who <laughs> that we're dealing with in the class. It's the one that doesn't remember how they got from A to B. Well, that's a good point, the one that doesn't remember. So from the point of view of that person, they never made the journey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this, who, this who is an imaginary, this self, this I, it's an imaginary construct, and it has no consistency to it at all. It's remade constantly, and it's only from the point of view of that temporary manufactured self that you could make a statement like, like what you just did, describing you know, I have, I have, I have no memory of making the journey, and that's totally true from that unique vantage point. It's only a mistake when we think that somehow the I that has no memory of it has any sort of uh, existential ontological relationship with all of the other eyes that were created and dissolved in the course of the journey. 
was thinking when you said it was a construct, because, I don't know, it seems like identity is a construct, if you have all these ideas, like, I'm this, I'm that, I'm whatever, I can't do this, I can do that. But then there's an experience, mm -hmm. which is kind of different. I can see that maybe that's also imaginary, or not imaginary, but kind of created, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. This is like, this, there's like at least those two things happening. This, what happens is we make deeper and deeper investigations is we find that the kinds of distinctions that we take for granted in ordinary language uh, no longer apply in the same way. And imaginary is one of those things. Because it is absolutely, totally true and you discover this as, as, as you explore your mind, your conscious experience, and the true nature of reality, that you realize that absolutely everything is imaginary. But its imaginariness isn't that of the sense of the way we usually use the word. Usually the word use the word imaginary in contrast to something that's not imaginary, that has some other kind of reality. Or we use intellectual like in a way like, to me, it's really easy to see, like, an intellectual theory or something like that. Well, what but the then mind? the self also can be yeah. created, like, it's a different kind of creation or it's a different mm -hmm. kind of thing than, say, creating a mm -hmm. scientific theory or something. But it could also still be created. It's just different. Yeah. Well, the totality of your experience is the product of your own mind. And that's mm -hmm. a fact. Yeah, even your own experience. But some people would make the foolish next step of saying, okay, my mind is all there is. And, and, and that, that, that's a tragic mistake to make. Just as some people might do the kind of practice that I just did, just led you into, and get really good at it and say, okay, this is who I really am. This is, this is my true self. And not in the very specialized terminology that Advaita uses the term true self, but in the, as the imaginary true self that the deluded person thinks that eventually that, there, that must exist and eventually that they'll find. You know, it's the true self that they imagine as being able to exist separately from the body and all of these other things. It's easy to make these mistakes. It's hard for eyeballs to look at themselves. What? I said it's hard for eyeballs to look at themselves. That's hard for them. Well, that's true. But the interesting thing is, that, uh, you know, that's the interesting thing about our human minds. This whole thing that I've been guiding you in all this weekend is the fact that you can use your mind to discover things. The mind can look at itself. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So some people might say the eyeball can't look at itself. Therefore, there's no point in trying. <laughs> and, and, yeah. See, they just don't have any imagination. Have you ever seen a mirror? <laughs> Anyway, if you if you find some utility in this practice, 
and, and definitely as you know, as you become a more accomplished meditator, you'll, uh, I don't know what your experience of it was today, but it it becomes a much more profound experience uh, as your as your abilities deepen, and as I say, it becomes an extremely valuable kind of insight practice to do when you get to higher stages of samatha. But anybody can use it in various ways, and like I say, one of the one of its uses is as an extremely powerful refuge when times get difficult, one that many human minds spontaneously discover on their own in the most difficult of all situations. I can only guess and imagine how many times the still point was discovered within the barbed wire confines of Auschwitz or in some of the camps in Cambodia and things like that. So it, it, is, it is there as a refuge and it's powerful and use it for that. The one thing I would want you to do is is never make the mistake of thinking that you're finding some kind of self that you can cling to. So, other than that, go for it. This was very useful that you were able to guide us, but I'd really like to know when, I mean, I got to hang on to your voice, but if you were doing this practice yourself, in, in your own meditation space, having a voice to hang on to isn't really an option unless you sit down and make yourself a tape or something. How, um, how, do, you, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. How do you do that for yourself without just... There were, there, there are places to go to get lost. And, yeah, and the yeah. body kind of, yeah. or the, the, the something, doesn't want to do that very readily, really. Well, um, all I can say is as, as, as your mind becomes a more well-trained and refined and useful tool, these kinds of things become much easier to do. Okay. And in a sense, I would say what you've just touched on is it's, it's a discovery that I made I didn't even make it, really. Um, a number of you made, which is that it is possible for me to lead you to these places. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, and I'm really glad. Because the first time I started doing this, one of, one of the occasions on which I do that did this which very, very unfortunately didn't, you know, it was one of the early days of our recording these talks, and, and almost half of the weekend retreat on the jhanas um, didn't get saved. But that was, that was the occasion in which I realized just fully how much could be done with guided meditation. Because I started out with this totally crazy idea that I could take a room full of people, including many who were very novice meditators, and guide them to having an experience of the jhanas. And I honestly didn't believe it was going to work, but it did. (laughs) 
and that's why I decided to try doing this, uh, doing this again this weekend. It's a, I think it's a great discovery. It's a great discovery, yeah. and we have to go home. It'll, it'll be on the web, actually. It'll be on the web. <laughs> <laughs> okay. yeah. I suspect that you'll find, because you were here, that listening to it's very powerful. What I'm really curious to find out, and haven't had the opportunity, is what is the experience of somebody that wasn't here in the room listening to these? I'd love to know the answer to that. What? I said I listened to the Saturday ones when it wasn't here. And and I said, I'll tell you. how was it? No, I wasn't here on Saturday. So I haven't heard so that. Oh yeah, I'm heard oh you're going to listen. Okay. Yeah. When you yeah. do then you tell me. Okay. Could you say something while um you do you were doing the guiding meditation and your question was why are we here? Mm-hmm. And I kind of thought about that question. I mean and I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah. It made me think about a purpose, yeah. but if everything changes, then if I know my purpose, mm-hmm. think I know my purpose today, maybe different in a year. Yeah. So, what would you be? What would be your answer to your own question? To why we're here. Mm-hmm. That takes much more time than <laughs> really. In, in in one sense, one one way of looking at it is that. Um, that's what this whole dharma is about. Finding the answers to those questions. And the answers to those questions don't come in the form of, of words and statements and ideas. But wouldn't the answer change? What's that? Wouldn't the answer change? When, as soon as you go and you try to put the answers... Now there's really, there's really only one answer. But as soon as the human mind tries to frame an answer in words and concepts, yeah, it can take all kinds of different forms, and none of them, none of them are adequate in a certain sense. Any any answer to that question that you can articulate is a wrong answer, or as was said a long, long time ago, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao, right? Ever heard that before? And that, that is really true. It's because words and concepts are an imaginary confabulation of a human mind, uh, subject to and actually embodying all of the limitations of a human mind. So, in any truth, any truth worth being labeled as such has to be way beyond anything that can be articulated that way. Yes? I think that was a really amazing imagery, not just imagery, experience. And when you have a teacher who has a, that first-hand experience and you're leading us or you're offering us the opportunity to experience that, if you 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 yourself have had the experience that empowers us, so to speak, I mean, it makes a space. And in I was kind of referencing back to something before lunch in terms of a, you know insight, you know, a teacher, and 
it's very delicate, as you said, everybody's mind does this differently, and I've had that experience with you, as you know, that um, that it's important to really, we're using words to talk about something that's pretty, you can't put into words, <laughs> and, and um, what am I trying to say, that, that to be guided to that, to not end up in the gates of madness, or give up your meditation, or um, try to think it out in your mind, because it doesn't matter what you think, you're wrong, and you block yourself from the experience. And um, I just really appreciate you from that, and I, I had a really amazing experience, thank you, that tied into something that happened on the 10-day retreat. Really you're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs>